Well, thank God, literally, for the minds that created and manufactured video recording capabilities through the years. The ability to record the actions of police brutality against black human beings has been essential in waking up white people to the truth of what has been happening in this country. This was the case even with the big bulky TV cameras of the 1960s that captured and broadcast into living rooms across the nation dogs attacking protesters, women and men and children, black women and men and children especially being blasted with fire hoses, black men and women being clubbed to unconsciousness and left bleeding in the streets. For many white people, these images revealed a reality they had never seen themselves before. And it changed their understanding of life for black human beings in the United States. One of the significant factors in spreading the rage across our country in the past couple of weeks has been the sharing of videos taken from cell phones. And I have been astonished at the sheer numbers of these videos, capturing all sorts of different episodes of violence by police and the grotesque willfulness to violently inflict harm on other human beings. And, of course, what sparked the revolt against such behavior was initially a single video of a white police officer killing a black man, George Floyd. Sadly, we have seen other videos along these same lines. But I think that the reason this video broke the dam of pent-up rage was the amount of time that the killing took. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. Yesterday I was reading about a person, a reporter who has, has long covered internationally and nationally um, terrorist attacks and all sorts of different violent attacks. And for an exercise, this reporter wrapped up uh, a gel pack around a yoga mat to give sort of that tension and, and feel of a human neck and knelt on it for eight minutes and 40 seconds. And it was astonishing not only what it did to his own body in trying to do that for that long, but also then by the time he got up that the, that the mat itself was, was just flattened and didn't even return to normal. Almost nine minutes. Most of the violent actions that we have seen through videos of, on cell phones over the past five to ten years have happened quickly. Most of them take no longer than the time it takes to pull a trigger. Bam! It's over. Another black man, another black woman is dead. And because it has happened so quickly, so often, a bunch of us white people could say, oh, well, maybe it was an accident. You know, the heat of the moment, 
just carried away. But this one took so much time. This unarmed black man lying face down on the pavement with his hands cuffed behind his back. And this white police officer with a gun on his hip and three other armed cops around him kneeling his full body weight on the neck of George Floyd, listening to Mr. Floyd crying out for help, telling him he can't breathe, even crying out for his dead mother. But this white officer knelt on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes until George Floyd died. And we can see the life of this human being slipping away, being drained out of his body. And we know that what is happening is wrong. We know that it is a violation of everything that is right and just. We know that it is wrong because we know that all life is sacred to God, all life. And therefore, George Floyd's life is sacred to God. And this morning, we must more specifically affirm and proclaim that all black lives are sacred to God. And similar to what I was saying with the kids, a colleague of mine posted something that helps me understand uh, better, visualize it even more clearly, why focusing on black lives in this moment is the right thing to do. He posted this meme that said, if my wife comes to me in obvious pain and asks, do you love me? An answer of, I love everyone, would be truthful, but also a hurtful and cruel statement in that moment. This moment is for preaching, for proclaiming the sacredness of black lives. At first glance, our text from this morning from Deuteronomy doesn't seem like it has much to do with this present moment. Almost everything about this text is strange to us. It's talking about life centuries ago in Israel. It's talking about where and when and how you can eat wild game versus herd animals. It's talking about culture laws and sacrifices in the temple. But at its heart, it is talking about the sacredness of life. Notice how much concern there is over the blood of the animals. Verse 21. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put the temple is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks that God has given you, as I have commanded, the way in which, which very much dealt with clean and quick, paint, as painless as possible death for the animal. Verse 22, eat them as you would a gazelle or deer, but, verse 23, 
be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is life and you must not eat the life with the meat. Again, you must not, verse 24, you must not eat the blood poured on the ground like water. Verse 25, do not eat it so that it may go well with you. Even in verse 27, a part that I didn't read, it goes on and there's another time. Present your burnt offerings at the altar, Lord your God, both meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat, not the blood. All this concern about the blood. Why? Because of what we heard particularly in verse 23. Be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life. And you must not eat the life with the meat. In fact, notice how in that last bit, the blood is so much associated with the life of the animal that the words are interchangeable. Be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life and you must not eat the life with the meat. For a variety of reasons, over time, the church in North America has come to view almost any language in the Bible about blood or sacrifice as something to do with punishment for sin. But the system of sacrifices in the Hebrew First Testament was far more complex and comprehensive than that extremely limited view. Colin Gunton, a British professor at King's College, University of London, explains an important point in his book, The Actuality of Atonement. It reads, the Old Testament practice, the Hebrew First Testament practice, like Deuteronomy, is centered on the slaughter of animals or the gift of some inanimate substitute, olive oil, oats, barley. Biblical sacrifices were made for various purposes, for sin, for sealing of a covenant, for thanksgiving, for remembrance of a historic salvation, salvation for communion with God or simply as a gift in response to God's goodness. So that point about all the comprehensiveness and the fact that it could be oats, Gunton writes, is very important in demonstrating that sacrifice does not here carry any connotations of vengeance or punishment. As he writes, you cannot punish a cup full of barley. He goes on to explain that biblically, much of the whole sacrificial system and the language used connected to it must be understood figuratively. He writes, the use of the term sacrifice in a metaphorical way begins here already in the Hebrew First Testament. This is an absolutely crucial fact for us to bear in mind if we are to make sense of later developments. In fact, he quotes then a line from Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. 
And again, later in, in time, in Paul's letter, we heard that from his writing to the Roman church. The sacrifice, your, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. This figurative understanding of language around sacrifices is vital to apply to that word blood also. In an important way, blood and life were synonymous in the Hebrew First Testament. We saw that in verse 2. Don't eat the blood because it's the life. You can't eat the life with the meat. They're interchangeable. So the care that Moses commands here in this section for the blood of animals is a reminder to God's people that the life even of animals is sacred to God. Daniel Block, a commentator from formerly Wheaton College, is quite helpful here. He writes, even as this passage encourages us to enjoy the provision of God, I love the way that starts out. If you're far away from the temple and you feel like having meat, you say to yourself, I want meat, then eat meat. So even as this passage encourages us to enjoy the provision of God, it does so with a profound ethical sensitivity. The slaughter of animals for meat could easily degenerate into savagery, and a ruthless disregard for the life of the animal. However, the ritual draining of the blood reminds the persons who slaughtered the animal and those who eat its meat that even the life of the creature is sacred. If the meat is eaten with its blood, the blood will cry out to God and the offender will become the target of divine fury. While the flesh is sanctioned for human consumption, life itself is inviolable, and God remains the guarantor of the sanctity of the life of the animal. This text from Deuteronomy reveals clearly that all life is sacred. But the history of white people in this nation reveals that we have not believed this true of all lives, particularly the lives of black and indigenous human beings. There will come a time when we will have to confront our evil towards indigenous people. But in this moment, I believe this passage cries out for us to proclaim specifically that all black lives are sacred. Our history of sacrilege against black lives is centuries long. When the Constitution of the United States was adopted in 1787, it took five black human beings to be counted as three. In 1857, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Dred Scott versus Sanford that the U.S. Constitution was not meant to include black people as citizens of the United States, whether they were slaves or free. And it wasn't until my lifetime that both black men and black women were allowed to vote. And that is merely what our written words said of black lives. 
our actions of violence and terror and injustice have been even worse. Black lives are sacred, and it is far past time to honor that sacredness. Our hope to live honoring the sacredness of black human beings comes in Jesus Christ. Our hope comes in allowing his life to fill ours. Jesus offered the fullness of his sacred life, birth to death to resurrection, the fullness of his sacred, sacred life, that we might live honoring all life. Jesus's life within our own can cleanse us from all of our prejudice, our bias, our fear, and our hate. And Jesus's life within us can fill us instead with openness and compassion with strength and a will to justice. But this transformation demands our all. And that passage, gospel passage, of what Jesus is talking about, what it means to, to take his life into ours, is so graphic that it had people disturbed who were hearing his words, I am the bread of life, your ancestors ate manna in the desert, yet they died, but here himself is the bread of life that came down from heaven. And a person may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, they will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the people began to argue. I'm going to read on a little more. The people began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, life, the blood he's talking about is the fullness of his life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. So much so is our bringing of life, of the life of Jesus into our lives. So much so is the, the work of the Holy Spirit to bring Jesus's life into our, that ours, that that language is so graphic. And then in our New Testament passage, like I mentioned, Paul says, our part in this is to offer our bodies even as a living sacrifice to God. That's what worshiping God is. And it's that that allows us to honor the sacredness of black lives. All this talk about sacrifices and blood and flesh has almost nothing to do with punishment or vengeance. It's about God creating a world where all of creation thrives and lives in peace and joy. 
All life is sacred to God. But in this moment, we must know, proclaim, and live the truth that black lives not only matter, all black lives are sacred. Thanks be to God.